You're listening to the Straight Out of Footwork Experience with Coach You're listening to the Straight Out of Footwork Experience with Coach You're listening to the Straight Out of Footwork Experience with Coach Cha 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 Cha. You're listening to the Straight Out of Footwork Experience with Coach Cha. DJ Kenny, how are you doing, man? I am doing great, Cha. It's thrilling for me to be here with you. Yeah, how's everything going? Good. Uh, I am probably uh, more exhilarated at any point in my professional or personal life. Right. And as you know, I am uh, genuinely an optimistic and fully engaged person. Yes, you are. Uh, but no... Uh, but but not more so than right now. Okay. In this part of my journey as a person, as a husband, as a dad, as a citizen, as a professional, somebody who is trying to work on behalf of equity and justice, it's a, it's a really special time. Okay, that's great. So we were kind of just talking a little bit in the, in the pre-interview that I don't want to read a particular bio but what i want to do right now is to let's start where you are professionally right now can you tell the audience what is your title and what is your current organization Mm -hmm. so the title that i think of myself as is the chief cook and bottle washer (laughs) of philadelphia youth basketball my formal title is president and ceo of this nonprofit organization, and I also serve uh, as a board member, and I'm one of five co-founders. Okay. And we are a basketball-based youth development and community empowerment organization, and we launched in June of 15. We're fully out of the startup mode of laying the rail tracks, okay. if you will, right. of the program and the identity and the operating systems and the organization building and uh, we're beginning to expand that programmatic work and also uh, we just bought a significant property very few people know that and that's going to be the home of a future youth development and community empowerment center in the nice town neighborhood of north philadelphia okay now for you and i when you and i first became connected with each other it was through the game of tennis and I will say it it was still a few years uh, after you and I had been around each other that that I began to learn about your interests and your love in basketball now we are ultimately going to talk about the tennis but for you Mm -hmm. where did your love of basketball begin when did that happen for Kenny Holtzman? I say it began at a very early age. My dad, who grew up in South Philly and loved the game, it played at South Philadelphia High School. Um, I was always around the game, whether it was 
in the backyard or in the playground. I, I grew up in Elkins Park, just over the city line in Cheltenham Avenue, okay. the northern suburbs. And uh, I just fell more deeply in love with the game, both for the kind of the physicality and artistry of it, but in, in a deeper way, I think the construct of five people on a court or 10 or 12 people on a team uh, playing against an opponent, all of the interconnectivity and relationships uh, I just fell in love with. Most of my childhood friends and high school friends I shared the game with. And what I really liked, Cha, and this is one of the reasons why I thought the building of Philadelphia Youth Basketball was a natural pivot, at least for me, from our work together at Legacy, is that basketball is a game that, at least in this city, it's really iconic. It is ubiquitous everywhere. It's culturally very relevant and very accessible. Um, And there's also this really low financial barrier to entry. Right. So the game ends up being this medium that fundamentally disrespects lines that typically divide people, lines of race, ethnicity, religion, neighborhood and geography, socioeconomic circumstance, education level. And anybody can walk into a gym or walk onto a playground and get into a pickup game. And the way in which you present yourself, the kind of teammate you are, the kind of player you are, that's what determines how it is that you coexist, good, bad, or indifferent, in that environment. Okay. So for you at that time, as far as your family was concerned, what would you have considered? What, what was your socioeconomic Mm-hmm. kind of status would you uh middle class upper middle class where, where would you say that you kind of fit in i'd say i grew up um middle middle class middle middle class so my mom was a uh, like your mom philadelphia school district teacher my mom became a guidance counselor okay and my father spent his career as a federal government employee first okay. with housing urban development and then with the general services administration So I grew up in an amazing community uh, in Cheltenham Township where there were, I would say, from the working class to the very affluent, uh, white, black, Asian, but largely Korean. Um, And there were black families and my friends significantly more wealthy, you know, in Wincote or Laverock than me and my family. And there were black families in Lamont or Linwood Gardens uh, who had less. There were very upwardly mobile Korean-American families. There were white Jewish families, white Irish Catholic, Italian, German descent. So it was really like a, a, a cool place to grow up in that it was my first experience of what I think of as authentic diversity. Okay. So that, that's really, that, that's at the core of where that comes from for you. Oh, yes. 
of really sizing up another human being based on what's what's there on the inside their heart their intellect their character uh not nothing to do with um you know what club their family right. did or didn't belong to so or where all of that all of that multicultural uh flavorings if you will uh saw its way to the basketball court for you also it did it did you know whether that was you know in in high school or out at you know parks and playgrounds that it was uh it was sort of like a an equalizer and a and a meritocracy that that again as i said it it just it disrespected lines that sadly so tend to divide people at that time as you were getting uh more interested in that who became your favorite player i would say through uh, my childhood i sort of like uh admired in a way you know Julius Irving Julius Irving all that crazy athleticism but as I got a little bit older and I understood the game better uh the guy who I liked most was Maurice Cheeks in that he to me at least was the quintessential point guard he knew how to distribute he knew how to organize stuff he knew how to make others better he knew how to control pace and tempo and where to feed the ball to whom and when and you know i thought he was masterful at that uh maurice cheeks was an was one of those early savants in basketball uh i saw so like you say maurice cheeks was somebody that was okay and like like you say making others great but when it was time for him to impose his will uh he would do so but he didn't have just one strict way that he wouldn't impose his will um i think uh again he imposed his his uh his mentality and 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 his approach and being okay to say uh i don't need i don't particularly need to be that guy mm-hmm. uh, i don't need to be and, and clearly he wasn't the number one star on that team but in certain ways he was the number one uh, star on that championship uh, team. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that was your favorite, if that was one of your favorite players, who who was the team that represented uh, the way that you looked at the game? Who was that team? Would it would it also be the Sixers, or would it be another team? I really liked uh, certain eras of the Sixers, okay. especially when there was a lot of. Uh, you know, ball and point distribution and spacing and a lot of grit, you know. So this Al Sixers, Greer. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I, I really actually prefer now. You know, I went to the Palestra the other night for the Catholic League semifinals. Yes. I love the high school game. And, uh, and, you know, the night before that, I was at South Philly High watching the Public League semis and monday i'll see the boys and girls catholic league finals um i also enjoy the college game so when i was in law school uh at temple it was you know i'd walk across the street from law school and see aaron mckee eddie jones and rick brunson 
So that era of college basketball, uh, I loved. So, you know, the personalities, the, you know, John Cheney uh, and, and, and all of his demonstrative emotion and skillful coaching, a thing of beauty. And so th- there's a human element to this that I find very attractive, too. Right. So when did, and uh, other than us working together in the tennis environment, I've seen you far more on the tennis court than I've seen you on the basketball court. How did, how did tennis inter- interject itself in there with, with this uh, immense love for basketball? Well, I was, um, I've probably told you this story, but my, my career has been a total patchwork that probably has coherence and sensibility only in my mind. Uh, a lot, if you looked at my resume, you'd say, you know, who is this guy and what he's about? And what is he about? That'd be, that would be unclear. So I, you know, was practicing law and uh, rarely inspired, didn't think I was very good at it, and then went into the Philadelphia School District building a service learning and youth leadership program. And the, the epicenter of that program was the Philadelphia Freedom Schools. Um, and it was a great privilege to work under Superintendent Hornbeck and to have colleagues like uh, Aisha Imani and Greg Carr and some really, really gifted educators. And I became keenly interested in the relationship between young kids of color and school and young kids of color and community and the bigger democracy. And uh, I spent five years in the school district and then six and a half years doing national work um, with a lot of private foundation money trying to, in many ways, expand the way we were trying to give kids what we called voice, value, and visibility in the local work in Philly. And uh, all the while I was coaching uh, my own kids and a lot of Mount Airy-based basketball and baseball teams throughout Northwest Philly and going to a lot of rec centers. And I became really enamored with the power of both sport, but also space and place, namely in these civic spaces called recreation centers. Uh, I saw them as a greatly underutilized, underexploited way to do youth and community development. And I wanted to re-engineer and reinvent the whole recreation system. And I tried to get hired as the recreation commissioner uh, in the Mayor Nutter administration. So this is going back to uh, 2008 or 2007. And um, so before you go further, further right there, I'm interested in that. What what um, what what were you structurally? Did you see you wanted to change in the recreation center system? You wanted to you wanted to give a greater focus towards towards community involvement or. a greater emphasis on on bringing bringing education into it. What did you mm-hmm. What did you see was was kind of fundamentally the lacking uh, or the missing piece that was there that would make a big change for you? 
I would say it was a combination of um, programming and community involvement mm-hmm. that I saw um, a small percentage of the rec centers um, had, quote, rec leaders that really understood how to organize programming, how to work with volunteers, how to deal with young people. So um, the gyms and the playing fields and their utility spaces were either greatly underutilized or misused, in in my opinion. Okay. And uh, I thought, you know, in some of these neighborhoods, the potential of these spaces and places and staff people and community advisory councils could be an enormous uh, catalyst to lift up young people and, and, and in turn to make the communities more vibrant. So it was that that I wanted to kind of knit together. And I didn't get the opportunity to do that. They hired a colleague of mine named Susan Slauson, who at the time was running the Police Athletic League. And uh, a group of uh, disparate individuals would say to me, hey, you should go run Ash. And I said, why would I do that? I'm not a tennis player nor a tennis person. And what one realizes after... You know, I guess at the time I was in my early 40s that and and, and I don't consider myself the most self-aware person. I'm, I'm not. But one of the things that I've come to learn is that when three or more people whom you hold in high regard tell you to pay attention to something, you ought to listen. So I explored this. Arthur Ashe organization and position. And sure enough, what they needed was not a tennis professional, but an organizational leader who had a deep appreciation for both uh, young people, but also the power of sport. So that led me to put my head in the ring in that job search. And shortly thereafter, uh, I made a move. Okay, and then and that's funny from my perspective. Now I have a greater clarity on how that how that uh, bridge got 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 for you, um, but it's very logical. I can I can see where it is uh, very uh, appropriate for, like you say, for those who are so close in your inner circle that said, "Hey, you need to listen to what we're you need to listen to what we're saying, mm-hmm. and maybe start to do a little shifting." I think that's a such an important uh, lesson for for the audience, um, whether younger, middle aged, or a little older, in in having a uh, a a circle, an innermost circle that is close to you, whose whose advice that you really trust. Uh, again, because sometimes that is like how they say for a coach, a good coach isn't the one who always tells you what you want to know or what you what you want to hear but it's what you need to hear and do you have the respect and the maturity to say okay even though i may i'm I'm not particularly sure about what that message means but somebody sees something different uh and and i have to respect that perspective so that's how how you came came across there all right so um i want to jump in real quick right here let's talk a little bit about your family mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about your uh, your family structure, your wife, your boys, and everything sure. there. 
So I'll start young to old. So I've got uh, a 21-year-old named Danny. Danny. Who you probably saw grow up from a yes, I did. little I've, boy through uh, yes. being a teenager. And uh, he's now a junior across the river at, uh, well, and this side of the river, at yeah. University of Pennsylvania. Okay. And he's in the Annenberg School of Communications and very interested in sports communication, sports marketing, all that. He had a great experience at uh, Central High School and uh, loved every minute of that. He had left Penn Charter uh, after nine years, kindergarten through eighth grade. And uh, he's he's one of those kids that just, um, he's a unique combination uh, of interested, interesting, curious, motivated, for the most part, organized. So okay. he knows how to do school, meaning he knows how to learn and achieve in school and just beginning to kind of, I would say, get more um, intellectually interested in learning. Right. Um, and uh, really, really good kid, and I see him uh, infrequently. He's let me know that, you know, Dad, just because I'm, see, he started at Michigan, now he's at Penn, just because he's seven miles from Mount Airy doesn't mean that I can be right. popping into the college right. bubble. And I know. So, you know, kids, kids, they give you those signals like, uh, so for his 21st birthday, my job was to get my friend Rahim Islam Jr., a.k.a. Dr. Jerkenstein, to provide dinner on the night of the Super Bowl, okay. Danny's 21st, okay. for him and about 50 of his friends. But I wasn't meant to but be there. But you were meant to be there. You know, I was just meant to. You're just a facilitator. Facilitate. That's okay. Yep. And that, that's a good sign. You know, Amy and I, my wife, talk about you got to give your kids roots and wings. And Danny is flying very well right now. My first son, Greg, who's 23, uh, lives in Los Angeles, and he uh, is a podcaster. So Greg started. And you know, I've shared with you, I, I said that uh, Greg has been uh – a, a, a motivation and an inspiration from afar because I did see when he started doing in, in some of his endeavors and I said, wow, I'm really proud to see um, what, what he was doing. Unfortunately, at that time, I wasn't uh, set to kind of get a couple of my endeavors off the ground, but I just wanted you to know and also if he's listening that he has been a, a great motivation and again, inspiration to me. So continue, man. Yeah, that, well, that's great to hear, and I appreciate you saying that. And and, and I too find a lot of inspiration in, in in what he's been through and what he's done. So Greg uh, had left Penn Charter after ninth grade, wanted a bigger environment, went to Central, and loved it. Uh, and 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 he had a really nice uh, high school basketball, baseball experience good player as was Danny and uh, Greg went to a small college called Denison University in Granville Ohio and he really wanted to be a, a D3 basketball player and also get himself educated and uh, did not work according to plan he had three very nasty uh, concussions and related symptoms that flowed from you know those brain injuries right. moved back home 
got his feet underneath him and re-enrolled at Temple. And, uh, you know, when you're concussed and you can't uh, look at TV or computer screens or, you know, sometimes sunlight bothers you, the medium that he fell in love with was podcasting. Right. And he would listen to podcasts for many hours a day uh, in those moments of his recovery. And then when he came out, began to come out the other side, built Philly Famous Podcast. Right. And he literally, Cha, found his voice and found something to reinvent himself now that his playing days of basketball were over. And, um, you know, I, I would never wish some of the pain that he went through on anybody. I don't want to make this out to be some kind of Pollyannish thing. I understand. But, you know, the way that he transformed himself and his interests in the face of this struggle to then find a new passion and, and, and one that really motivated him. Uh, beautiful, beautiful to see. So now he's uh, living in a neighborhood called Silver Lake outside of L.A. and works in Las Villas and he hasn't been able to kind of fully monetize his own podcast. It's difficult. It is. I mean, he's got a nice little CBD sponsor uh, that supports some of his work, but but nothing big. So he is now honing his craft uh, and working for a company called Believe Limited as one of their podcast producers. Okay. Um, this is, uh, you know, one of the things for, for me as... Um, just getting this endeavor off the ground. And for me, I, I have had a long uh, time desire and interest in broadcasting from my life as a professional DJ, obviously. Um, you know, and, and, and again, it's something I'm also very uh, relating to as far as reinventing yourself for me as a, uh, a in, in my mid-50s right now, I am still continuing to... Uh, uh, reinvent myself. I want to invent new things and finding what your niches are and doing your self skills inventory to say, okay, I have this skill in this and I have this experience in this. How do I turn this into? And, and again, but just as far as the podcasting, the important thing to uh, remember is initially, please don't go into it from with the money in perspective. Um, if you're just genuine and 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 you're into it and you have content and you have which way that you want to go please just continue to believe that all those other things if they were meant to be uh will fall in place but it is so uh, important for you to just uh follow what your path of passion and interest is and and again like i said all those other things will ultimately fall in place i am so proud to to hear what he what he's doing um so how long have you been married let's talk a little bit wow. about that because I, th- I think uh you're 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 someone when i look at you i am i'm very uh very proud to see the not, not yeah, the the complete family man mm. uh that that you are that is something that is very special uh to me to be able to to see that so let's talk a little bit about your wife yeah so uh Amy and I uh, are been married for almost 26 years. Come time uh, May 21, okay. and I find it amazing that she has 
endured and tolerated me for a quarter of a century. Wow. I'm a handful. Okay. And uh, a deeply devoted husband and dad, but, um, you know, I'm intense. I got a big personality. Yeah. I have, you know, a, a, a huge commitment to my work. I love people. I love food and drink and um, none of that to excess, but I drink up life like a tall glass of water. And that's fine. And I think uh, that 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 is so. I mean, you know, to stop in here real quick, I think that is something that is so important for for people to to hear. You know, we 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 hear stories day in and day out. We can hear these tragedies. We can hear these things. You know, but it is so much easier to say live life as if it was going to be your last day. There is a tremendous effort that really goes into that, but there's also a a certain level of freedom and empowerment that you have to to have that kind of perspective to say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to really really enjoy every second of life and to go about it with the kind of fervor um that any one of us should mm-hmm. be able to to go to go into into this endeavor uh of of life and and that that is something about you that inspires me also. Thank so you. thank you so much, man. Yes, I I think Amy and I have really learned uh, how to be good together. I think that um, for two people to believe that they're going to like, they're going to have the same interests, want to be around the same people, want to put together the same kind of home, um, have the same level of spirituality. Like, I think what... um, you realize as your marriage matures is that um, not everything has to be a mirror image of one another and that in your differences there can be even greater compatibility if that makes sense so I think we've got a, a, a we got a really good thing going together I mean we make each other laugh we have fun and, and Amy's also a nonprofit leader so professionally we have a little bit of an overlay as well okay and she has uh, run a youth-serving nonprofit for over a decade. She's uh, directed a very esteemed grant-making foundation for an amazing Philadelphia family called the McGuire's. And now she is, uh, um, has built a business called Essential Leadership. And she is a leadership and philanthropy coach. And her real niche that she's building out is how to help um, largely multi-generational wealthy families create uh, family foundations and plans to give time and talent and treasure and network ties in ways to the community that drive impact and align to their values and enable them to be fuller um, more engaged, more satisfied members of the community. So that's what she's built, and she's loving it. I've not seen her um, more engaged and more inspired uh, in her professional life than she is right now. So I would imagine that both of you have been able to to have, I mean, not just have a basic interest, but um, some working knowledge of each other's careers and the intricacies and the 
pitfalls and the uh, triumphant moments that can be there in in your different, but sometimes in in some kind of way similar type of career. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you know, we feel uh, intellectually, but also emotionally, uh, the ups and downs of each other's right. career successes and challenges and all that. So you know, she is just a a beautiful woman and a great, you know, person to kind of journey through this life with. I think we're pretty good co-parents together. And then the the older part of our family that I want to talk about for a minute, Cha. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you and I, before we began recording, you were spending some time talking about your beloved mother who's passed recently. And Amy and I together... Uh, with divorces and remarriages, have seven parents. Can you imagine that? Wow. Um, all somewhere between 74 and 84. And both of my biological parents are deeply involved in my life and our kids, and they're both healthy. And I didn't really grow up with a classic kind of set of grandparents. Um, you know, my dad's dad passed before I was born. My mom's mom passed when I was very young. Um, wasn't that close to my dad's mom, who was much older. My dad was the youngest of several kids. My mom's dad, you know, ran a gas station up in Logan and wasn't the warmest, most accessible guy. Okay. So... Greg and Danny have grown up with seven grandparenting relationships and me with parents and in-laws, all of whom I'm really close to and fond of. So that multi-generational family thing has been an amazing uh, blessing um, that I never fully understood how you know, meaningful and powerful that could be. Okay. Wow, that's uh, that's very powerful there. Um, and I guess for for me, looking from almost a a different end of the spectrum, is that I have a uh, I have a core family that is very small. Mm. You know, so that's why you know when we talk about how my year was last year. That in one year that I would uh, lose uh, two two of the most significant people um, that have ever been there for me in my life. But uh, thing, things are things are getting better. Um, I want to take a, a quick, not just a, just a quick moment, um, but within everything that you have been doing just as it relates to basketball, and I just uh, greatly love being able to sit here and, and, and hear your perspectives on the game. But I do want to take a minute uh, to talk a little bit about Mamba. Kobe, mm. yes. Um, there, there's no way that I can, uh, we we not take a moment uh, to to talk a little bit about the uh, legend. And I did see uh, some very a uh, couple of the emotional posts that were there because I do recall uh, what was it just last year? Yeah, we had uh, when Kobe was here with you a visit 
uh, with Kobe in March. In March of last year, right? I do recall that it that it was just not that long ago, and I remember just saying like, "Wow, this that is that is like such a uh, special treat there." Um, first, tell tell us about that uh, event in that time when uh, you were last with Kobe for the event here. It was extraordinary. Um, one of my PYB co-founders and fellow board members, Doug Young, uh, very close to Kobe. They played together at Lower Marion and have had a really close relationship ever since. Doug arranged for Kobe to come to the Andrew Hamilton School uh, at 57th and Spruce in West Philly and to spend a morning with our Philadelphia youth basketball young people and the rest of the Hamilton School community. Right. And Kobe was releasing a book. Uh, he's become, had become quite the author and creator of uh, the first of a book series called the Wizenard series. And uh, we all convened in the library, and uh, one of our coaches, Randy Butler, she also leads our girls' empowerment program. She modeled a PYB academic session rooted around Kobe's book. And in that circle were 10 of our young people. Kobe, Kobe's English teacher, his muse, as he called her, Jean Mastriano. The muse, right. And Randy. And there was a moment where I looked at Kobe when Randy was introducing the book and the kids were reading passages and then grappling with themes and character development questions in that book. And Kobe had this look of just immense joy, like I have created something and done something post-playing career that is genuinely valuable to young people. Right. And that look of just... I don't know, pure pleasure and satisfaction with who he was and what he had done in that moment. And it was his first time back in the city of Philadelphia, other uh, than as a member of the Los Angeles Lakers in Philly to play a ball game against the Sixers. Um, I was totally struck with his authentic ability to connect with a range of people. So one of my newer friends, mentors of the last four or five years is a man named Mo Howard. And Mo is uh, uh, played at Maryland and in the league for a while, Philly guy. And Mo was there with me in that library. And when Kobe walked up to Mo and the expression of just, you know, I'm home kind of looked. Mo met Kobe before Kobe was 24 hours old in the hospital because Mo came up in, in our local basketball community with Joe Bryant. Right. And then to see Kobe with a 10-year-old kid and then our food service guys and then the media and our coaches that um, his ability to connect and touch people was amazing and I don't mean that you know it's different from everybody ooing and eyeing at your athletic prowess 
But I mean the one-on-one human interaction. Like when you were, I got two or three minutes with him, just me and him. And for that very moment, I felt like I was in in, in PYB, the organization that I was speaking with him about. We were the only thing that mattered in that time and space. Um, And I think for a lot of athletes who grow up at that level of stardom, it's really sometimes hard to be present right. in a in a human interaction with somebody like me who's quite ordinary. Like you say, I mean, because Kobe was an individual who was a superstar almost his entire life. Not just a little, you know, the level lower levels of famous or whatever. I mean, a superstar from very very early on and one of the things that i always uh loved about um seeing him and things that i've been looking at over these past uh few weeks was just his level of intelligence for someone who had had very little formal schooling how you know all of the languages that he could speak just at the drop of a dime. And like you say, his ability to be able to be so present and that every moment was this valuable moment and this interest was the most important interest in this moment and at this time and that there's nothing, like you say, I am this uh, legendary persona Um, But he seemed to work so tremendously hard to not let that, particularly in his post-playing career, to not let that be a barrier between him and anyone else who he may be particularly addressing or talking to Mm -hmm. at any one particular moment, like you're sharing with your moment. I also think that us having Kobe Bryant visit post-playing career, and as you'd imagine, we had been pursuing him for quite a long time. Had we gotten Kobe as Kobe the basketball player, it would have been a very different experience. A different experience. And this was Kobe as uh, author and creator and innovator and intellect, all that. And for the young people in our program, uh, we are not about giving them any grandeurs of being great in the game of basketball. That might sound hard or, or odd. Uh, we're not a player development organization. We take the basketball training and skill development and gameplay seriously, and I think we're good at it. And Many of our coaches played and coached at a pretty good level. However, it's the the thing that we're trying to develop in young people is a healthy and positive relationship with learning and school, a really positive relationship in the way that they interact with peers and adults. It's discovering passions in intellectual pursuits. It's personal and academic and civic and social development. Um, and all of that is needed. In, in, in our city, uh, especially for lower-income kids of color, Cha, 
if you can get yourself into a high school in ninth grade that has a strong academic and social and intellectual culture, you've got a shot regardless of your circumstances. If you end up, you know, crossing that bridge into ninth grade and you don't care about learning, you don't find learning empowering or inspiring, or you don't care about your relationships with peers and adults, you know, you're, you're on a fast road to nowhere. It is really hard if you end up uh, in a high school where 20% of those young people go to college and another 20% might get involved in a good apprenticeship program or the military, and 60% don't. And the predominant culture, if you will, is not supportive of the academic, intellectual, or athletic pursuit, you're swimming upstream. And, you know, uh, my children, they have the benefit of conversations around the dinner table, you know, a community that pushes them and supports them and, you know, the expectation that they're going to find interests and really cultivate them. So for my kids, you know, they could go to an average school and still be fine. But for kids in other circumstances, they need education to really propel them. And I would argue both education in the in-school setting, but then also what happens in the out-of-school time environment. And that's where, you know, organizations like Philadelphia Youth Basketball or Legacy or Starfinder or others are trying to use the power of a particular sport to wrap that with other programmatic elements uh, to really make not just 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., but 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. or 6 p.m. an extended continuation and a coherent continuation, continuum, of a child's learning and development. That's really what it's what I care about. And I think, you know, Kobe Bryant coming to us talking about the creative and intellectual pursuit of developing characters and writing a book, way more powerful as if it was Kobe coming to us about a reverse pivot into a baseline jumper. You know, and, and you and, know footwork. And and absolutely I do. I mean but in this crazy uh kind of way it was in, in in this small in this small way, Kobe was making intelligence and education really cool. That's that, right. That it that is that it's or you know, you know, some you know, maybe one of these things and you know, talking about doing an audio book or reading books or things like that that maybe unfortunately in some in some circles or maybe in some homes or communities or just circles in the neighborhood don't seem to be things that a a a youth wants to talk about. Hey, I read this book or I did this or I I went to this museum or I have an interest in this. You know, how many things can get stifled um uh, because of that environment, but here is somebody um post playing career 
that found, you know, when you when you look at uh, on ESPN Plus with the details, I mean, the, the level of, uh, like you say, of being a savant and understanding the game in, in that kind of perspective, but then all of these other areas where he was, he was making it so evident to say like, wow, being intelligent is something that is, it's really, really uh, something that we should all be striving for and look at how it's making me better with all that I have at this time in my life that, that I have all these other things, but these, the, the, these endeavors that may not seem to be worth it very much. We're making him so much more of an enriched and empowered mm-hmm. individual there. That's right. And I think when, if people interpret quote unquote, the Mamba mentality right. as really only applying to the grind of becoming great, at basketball or at whatever your chosen pursuit is, I think that's a narrow casting of what the Mamba mentality really is about. I think it's about for its, its voracious learning and continuous improvement about your craft and it's surfacing your gifts and talents to their highest and best purpose. Right. That's the Mamba mentality. If somebody thinks it means I got to go put my 10,000 hours into uh, becoming an elite level basketball player because that's what Kobe was about in his Mamba mentality, it's it's a very narrow portion of right. what um, I think his life and his philosophy represents. Right. And, you know, um, at, at the date of this recording, which is... Uh February the 21st, obviously on Monday, we're, they're going to have the uh, the uh, remembrance out at the Staples Center on the, on the 24th. So I hope everybody gets an opportunity to uh, share one more time in, 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 uh, in all those uh, festivities uh, the way that they are. Mm. Uh, um, but the remembering of his life and, and, the, and his daughter's life and those other individuals that were unfortunately... Uh, loss in 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 that accident. Mm-hmm. So, um, really, thank you for really sharing sharing that. I wanted to make sure that I got that in, e- even if it was just self serving. I wanted to hear you yeah. talk about the uh, the experience because I was, you know, I'm always so uh, in tune to everything that you're doing at PYB and following everything and all that. So, I really, um, yeah, uh, really, really appreciate well, that. So, uh, so let me ask you, what is uh you know, you, you, you said very on, you said early on, um, where you are in your life and in your career, what's, what's up next for PYB? Mm-hmm. What, what's up next? What's so there, there's a few things that, uh, are occupying our attention right now. So, um, one is that we have, uh, baked into all of our programming this framework called social and emotional learning and we're doing a huge amount of professional development with our staff uh, around this and it's also a part of our whole measurement and evaluation strategy the way we measure our impact uh, in the lives and the development of young people so i know it sounds terribly wonkish and without glamour but this is the nuts and bolts um, 
of social impact work. And it's the, you know, there are a lot of organizations, youth organizations out there that will tout, you know, we create transformative experiences or we transform the lives of kids. And that's the holy grail of our business. And way too many organizations and organizational leaders overstate and misuse that word. And uh, it is hard. And what, what that transformation really represents is does the programming have the ability to help young people fundamentally transform the trajectory of their lives? They think differently. They act differently. They are different than where they were prior. And to do that in the most positive of ways. So we're putting a lot of time and energy uh, into the social and emotional learning work and staff training. In fact, on Sunday morning, I'm really proud of this, 16 of our staff members, I believe all or at least the overwhelming majority are African-American men and women who came up in very similar circumstances and communities as our young people. They're, they're going to begin a leadership development academy at the McNulty Leadership Program of the Wharton School of Business at Penn. And I think that's pretty atypical for a youth organization to be investing that deeply and that fundamentally into the capacity building uh, of a lot of its core people. Um, I'm thrilled about that. Uh, We just bought an industrial property uh, in Nicetown that's going to you know, be the site of our future center. We're putting together uh, a capital campaign. I, we just hired a project manager and an architect. And, man, the first the first uh, sketchings of the layouts, when I saw them, it, it gave me chills. Right. To think that we are creating something that is going to f- fundamentally improve the lives of thousands of people kids and families for the next hundred plus years. I mean, what a privilege to be able to be a part of work that has that level of, of meaning. So the last thing that I would tell you, Chai, is um, I think we've built a really sturdy platform and we can put more on it. And uh, a young man, 21 years old on our staff, Nahaji Cross, just wrote a grant proposal and we designed a program internally that we're going to serve about 25 kids, uh, older kids, adjudicated youth, young people who have gotten involved in the criminal justice system and are trying to get back on the rails. And a lot of the composition of the team is going to be basketball and mentorship and life skills and some of our our academic work some of the composition of the team are going to be men who are returning from incarceration so this is what i put in the category child like a stretch assignment for us that um you know the overwhelming majority of the kids whom we serve uh are a little younger and you know most of them are living somewhere at or just above or just below the poverty line. So I'm not telling you we serve kids without need. We do. 
But for a 15-year-old kid who's already had a run-in with the law, maybe have been connected to gun violence, um, helping that child find himself and putting very culturally relatable men into that child's life, uh, I think it's really exciting work. Right. It's going to push us. It's, it's different. Right. You know, when I listen to you, <laughs> my friend, uh, it, it reminds me um, of maybe one of the biggest traits that, that I've always loved about you just as not just a leader, but just as a human being in empowering people and empowering, uh, you know, when you uh, in any particular position as a leader, empowering those who you lead either towards more education or how, how can we improve our lives? How can I help you build and develop greater sustainability of your life? You know, that is when, you know, when I, again, when I, when I listen to you, like I say, it's just a constant reminder of, of, of what I think one of your greatest uh, traits are that, that, that I am so appreciative of because so many of, those kind of perspectives you know I was always like that uh, even before we met each other but for you uh, as an individual that is something that has always continued to uh, motivate me and in, in, in your ability to identify how can how can I make people better um, through either sometimes good resources or limited resources or created resources how can we go about uh, making this happen, I think that is something where you have such a uh, a finger on 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 the pulse there. You know, so thank you so much, man. Yeah, I mean, I I be overly, I don't know, philosophical for just a moment. Right. We live in a community and in a country right now that is really troubled, and I would submit to you, child, that if people were living and evolving to their greatest potential as fathers and mothers and friends and community members and professionals and active, engaged citizens. Um, life would be a lot better. Communities would be a lot stronger. The democracy would be a lot more robust. And, you know, of great importance to me, is we wouldn't have 25% of our city, largely who are African-American and Latino people, living in multi-generational poverty. If there were the supports and opportunities for people to emerge in healthy, positive, and productive ways. Uh, that's just my kind of view of the power of human capital that there are too many people for whom the conditions around them are as such where they need uh, real levels of investment into their growth. And I happen to think that, and, and this is one of the things, you know, child, that really inspired me about moving on from legacy to help begin Philadelphia Youth Basketball, mm -hmm. is the unbelievable reservoir of black men and women 
who have graduated college, came up in the basketball community, and care deeply about younger kids and, 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 and the development and learning of those younger kids. An enormous pool of human capital. And I think we have built a platform for a lot of caring adults, but especially African-American men and women to get on that platform and to begin to get uh, not just a wage, but exposure and visibility and a supportive community in their pursuit of helping young people. That for me is uh, so um, needed in any youth organization or in any community. So in fact, at Legacy, I remember the night you guys took me out on my my, my last day. Mm-hmm. We went to that old Deeks Barbecue yes, down we on Shur's Lane. Yes, we did. And I looked around and I saw you and Tahid and John Glover and Justin O'Neill and Lance Lee and Brian McGee and Malik and everybody. It, right. and, and I thought, I don't know if I've ever in one we took that picture. Yes, we did. In one ten foot square area been around as many positive black men who have devoted themselves to the uplifting of young people. And as a matter of fact, what I'm going to do, I'm going to make that picture, uh, I'm going to make that picture available uh, as the header for this, for this experience so they can see what that, yeah, no, um, that, that was, um, that was, that was a really good time and that was a really good, a good night. But again, that picture was so representative um, and, and, and for me, because obviously I'm kind of, I'm, I'm the sage old head of, of the group. I know for me, when, when I'm in, in that kind of environment like that, so many of these, of these individuals that you're talking to or talking about, they're not even as old as my sons. Right. Right. So for me, even though I, I, I feel as though I am their peers and we are colleagues at that one level, I still see them almost as my sons. Right. And, and that's the beauty of this sort of uh, intergenerational set of relationships that, um, you know, I, I look at the PYB staff and just because of the nature uh, uh, of the game, the number of high-quality coaches and mentors that have jumped in with us, and some of them, uh, Damien Stukes, you with Damien's sons now work on the staff. Right. He's a grandfather. And, and, you know, Kenny, let me just say, you know, um, that, that, is, that is something that sometimes is a little sore spot for me as, in, as an African-American man. You know, sometimes when we can, when we have what may be that stereotypical image of of an absent African American male in his family, or as a father, or in the community, you know, I feel as though like a a picture or the or these people that we're around day in and day out are to the contrary of what we may hear sometime or what we may be able to see in, in particular media coverage, 
you know, again, you know, when I think about, you know, the, these colleagues that I have now, they're, 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 they're all having their kids for the first time. And I'm about to have my first grand, I'm about to have my first grandchild. That's right. You know, but again, um, I, I, I think that, I mean, for us, it, it's, it's one of those things that, um, unfortunately is not thrust out there into the public eye enough to show that, okay, yeah, we have this percentage of those who may not be doing right and be there for their families and in the community, but also at the same token, we may have an equal number, if not more individuals who are there doing the things that, that, that we're doing on a day in and day out perspective. So sometimes I feel as though that that's for, for me as a, as a black male, that's, um, it, it, it's a, it's a weird way. It's a strange way to, to be in life sometimes. Right. Right. And, you know, and, when and people may perceive you one way or perceive all of us in one way, but I know that that, that goes across for many different groups or whatever, but that, that is something, you know, for us, but, um, but it is also something that makes me very proud to, to be able to have these other young black men by my side. And we're making these, um, significant contributions in our career to the families that, that, that we serve, to the children that we serve, to the organizations that we serve. And I, you know, I'm always going to do what I can do um, at my own platform to give that some light and to give that some greater clarity. That's important. Right. One of the uh, <clears throat> uh, things that was really tragic about the murder of our coach, Joe Daniels, uh, about three months ago, um, is that Joe lived and worked in the same community where he lived. He was a great father. You know, when we think about that, we think about Jonathan Rosado. Yep. You know, what we what we went through with that, a young man in the community, beloved in the community, mm. beloved in yep. the community, and to have him tragically taken away that way. Yeah, it's such a such a tragedy. And, you know, Joe uh, not only worked for us, but was at the Kenderton School where his son Zaire was a student, and Joe was started out as a volunteer at the school and with us, and then got onto the payroll as an engaged professional. And uh, you know the story that uh, I was pleased that came out of this tragedy is how Joe was doing the right thing as a father, as a community member, as a son. Um, and this was a six foot seven, 250 pounds black man. And the gentlest soul I had ever seen that when Joe would speak to young people in our program, always down on one knee, looking up, I mean, the most nurturing, sweetest man you could imagine. And, you know, Chai, I, I appreciate you saying that, well, you know, other groups and narratives have faced this. But I think, though, the plight, the struggle, um, and I've never walked in your shoes nor anybody else's shoes but right. my own, but I would imagine that being a black man, knowing that a lot of people, uh, the narrative that they have bought into is that black men are not 
responsible, engaged fathers, husbands, etc., and knowing that you aren't immediately given the benefit of the doubt, like a white man wearing slacks and a blazer like I am right now in your living room. Right. I'm given the benefit of the doubt until I prove otherwise. Otherwise, right. The presumption that a lot of black men face is you are not worthy until you prove to the contrary that you are. That presumption is really, really difficult. And and I'm and I, but I also want to be honest with that too. Some the, the other thing that I struggle with, um, that that I've struggled with as at, at at my age now, and and I have for years, I struggle with those who do the things that perpetuate those views and perspectives. You know, we're still not at a time when we cannot turn on the news and not see these bad stories where we cannot turn on the news and see that a young black male has accidentally shot a little black kid. Yep. I mean, when that time, when that time comes or like when we think about, you know, who comes into our community and kills us and and we know that murders happen by the people that you know, but again, there's not usually someone else that comes into our neighborhood and kills us. You know, it was not somebody outside of the community that came in, that was in the community that killed Jonathan Rosado. Right. It was not, it was not a white man that came from the suburbs that came to, to kill him or to kill who, you know, the coach that you know, these, this is, this, this is just not the case. Right. And that's the thing that makes it un, un, uh, frustrating for me is that w- with that wanting to be at the place where we are beyond reproach. Once we are beyond reproach, then we will be at that platform for the really true kind of empowerment and growth that we need. But as long as we still, unfortunately, do those things that help perpetuate it, it's going to continue to be uh, perpetuated, unfortunately. Yeah, but but I also think though there's a lot of other um, positive forces that change that narrative. Agree too. Agree. Right. I mean, I look around this city. One one of my mentees, Isaiah Thomas, just got elected to the city council. Uh, a powerful father, husband, community leader. I look at, you know, visible leaders like Bill Height of the school district, or, you know. Um, any number of other black men in a community setting, a governmental setting, a corporate setting. I mean, uh, I think the notion of black male achievement, um, really, one of the many great contributions uh, of Barack Obama right. was to demonstrate to the whole world uh, how thoughtful and graceful and competent a black man could be on the most challenging stage um, of leadership. Uh, amazing. And I think there's, you know, I, I think what we need to do is cultivate and lift up more leaders of color, men and women, uh, in any number of corners of the community and within organizations and all that and some of this to me cha involves opportunity. I get your point that 
you know, reading a newspaper on the Sunday morning or Monday morning in the warm weather months in our city and are watching the news and learning about black boys shooting each other in and around playgrounds or schools. Painful. And that doesn't help the narrative at all. But there's so many other positive instances Agreed. that need to be lifted up. Agree, right. Right. Yeah. And, and and that choice has to be, like you say, from from those who control the airwaves and control the stories and control what's put out there up front are are in have to be have to we have to hold them more accountable, whether they be black or white or whoever, we have to hold those who have the power to get stories out there. Mm-hmm. Which stories, those or those editors of the, of the paper, those editors of the blog, the editors of the newscast, that you know, and the people that are in this position to to say, or or as well as for us as the community, to say we are going to give as much attention to the non sensational black male story as it is to the sensational one of the. Of the of the corner that got shot right. up, uh, like it did the other day, we have to have that balance. We have to say, okay, we we, we want to hear that from an information perspective, but we have to continue. We have to be able to demand to say we want we want more of this other information. These these stories are out there. These individuals are out there. This is what we this is what we want more mm-hmm. of. This is what we demand more. Of. We're demanding this now. That's right, and the beauty of the medium of podcasting or blogging or even just writing thoughtful posts on social media is that you get the the power of uh, the pen or the microphone right. really diffused among everyday citizens. Right, and, and that, that's why this is uh, important for me because, again, um, I'm, I'm coming from the perspective just as a professional tennis coach, a professional DJ, but... Um, this is my platform to be able to show that I'm much more than that, um, that I have far greater visions and, and, and ideas about things. And this is going to be uh, my own little platform and, and to have individuals on like yourself who I know bring a certain uh, empowering perspective um to the debate and 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 to the environment that's what's important for me and then just like how we talked <coughs> excuse me early on um for me my my greatest my greatest accomplishment will will be in my legacy what I was able to do for my mother and and, and my brother um not something that's going to be known across the universe mm-hmm. and across the world or whatever but none less the important um, importance to to those individuals who I needed to be there for for a considerable period uh, of their lives and and for their care and to being able to get them to get them home quote unquote yep. uh, back to home and that's something for me uh, as a as a male as a black male and as a son. Um, and as a brother, that um, there'll never be anything that I am more more proud of as far as uh, an accomplishment is concerned. Mm-hmm. As you should be. And I think the small accomplishments, uh, like the one you've articulated, uh, are really, really significant. Not, not everybody 
is going to be on a stage of, you know, big social change like an Ali, an Ash, a Billie Jean King. Right. I think LeBron James is going out and making really big change with his celebrity. But uh, somebody who has a, um, you know, a point of view and a lot of love and, you know, gifts and talents of your own, the way you're using your time, and our time is precious, uh, to put it to good purpose. Right. To, in your case, care for your mom and your brother during a time in their life where they needed your care. Uh, I think that's really powerful stuff. And so with that being said, you know, we talk about time. I can't thank you enough um, for your time today. Um, this has been uh, a great experience. But, you know, for me, um, with our relationship, you know, you coming to spend some time here with me, it's it's uh, it's almost like I owe you a copay. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, really, it's it's been it's been great to see you, and 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 to reconnect. And I know we have so many uh, fronts going forward that we're going to continue to stay in in engaged on. I'm very, really excited about that. Um, I'm happy for. I mean, um, I can't say it from afar that I'm, that I'm, that I'm always your fan and watching what you do is somebody that I'm always seeing everything and and watching the growth of. PYB, but then also remembering uh, the fantastic work uh, that we did together uh, during your time at at Legacy. And and again, I can't thank you enough for just being uh, a a great leader um, within how you're trying to impact the world and and the community, um, but being uh, just a a tremendous impact to me and a very uh, dear loving friend that I know we will be that way for the rest of our lives. Amen, Cha. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed our time working together day to day. And although now it's more intermittent, I still treasure you as a, as a friend, as a colleague, as a fellow traveler. And I love you, brother. Hey, I love you too. Okay, with that being said, straight out of nation, once again, it's been Kenny Holdsman, my man. DJCN, give him a little something for the break. We'll see you in a minute. You're listening to the Straight Out of Footwork Experience with Coach You're listening to the Straight Out of Footwork Experience with Coach Chow. You're listening to the Straight Out of Footwork Experience with Coach